From the lines at the soup kitchens to the shanty towns and foreclosure signs, it was obvious that the Great Depression had been cataclysmic for America's economy. But in the early 1930s, there was no statistical measure to determine exactly how bad things were or chart the hints of recovery when they arrived. A young economist called Simon Kuznets came up with a plan. Calculate the value of all the goods and services produced by the economy and the result would be a single number that could, for the first time, easily signal the nation's wealth. He called this national income. A few tweaks later, we now know it as GDP. But Kuznets would go on to say that the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. GDP doesn't directly capture health or happiness, the things that most matter to people, though it does a pretty good job. The inventor of GDP, however, never intended it to have the sway over politics and policymaking that it still does. Nevertheless, America's GDP is one of the ways Joe Biden will be judged on his stewardship of the economy. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what is Bidenomics? Joe Biden took to the stage in Chicago this week to trumpet the economic achievements of his administration. He heralded America's post-pandemic growth and the buoyancy of the job market. Folks, that's no accident, he told the crowd. That's Bidenomics in action. The president is betting that Bidenomics will return him to the White House. But voters so far seem unconvinced. Can Biden's economic record get him re-elected? With me this week to discuss Bidenomics, what it is and what to make of it, are Idris Kanun in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard here with me in New York. Idris, what's going on in D.C.? Um, not too much. I am moving this weekend, so very excited about that, about packing all my possessions and, and carting them away. And other than that, um, just as we were recording this on Thursday morning, we got news that the Supreme Court had struck down affirmative action. Uh, just from a peek, it's a 237-page opinion. So we're going to be reading that and probably devoting the episode next week to it all once we've digested it. That is a big ruling. I expect when people look back at this court, the two rulings that will really stand out are Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade, and this one, overturning affirmative action. So yes, we will take a thorough look at that in next week's episode. And Charlotte, I know how you're doing because you're sitting opposite me. And the big news, as far as I'm concerned, in the New York Bureau is we have a new mixing desk here, which has all sorts of sound effects, which I'm able to play during the podcast. So expect me to use them liberally uh, to punctuate our conversation. Um, yeah, somehow I've been in this podcast room for months without knowing that there's a drum machine in here. But more substantively, I'm looking forward to reading that ruling. Reading Supreme Court rulings is one of the most fun activities, I think, that sets me in a small class of people for whom that's true. But they're really fascinating. And this one, I think, will be particularly 
debate-provoking. We're recording this podcast on Thursday, and on Wednesday, President Joe Biden gave a speech about Bidenomics. Jared Bernstein is chair of the Council of Economic Advisers, and so one of Joe Biden's key confidants on the economy. I spoke to him just before the president delivered his speech, and the first thing I wanted him to tell me was what exactly Bidenomics is. Bidenomics is growing the economy from the middle out and the bottom up, which I suspect you and your listeners know right off the bat, stands in stark contrast to a trickle-down approach to economics where uh, you cut taxes for rich people and somehow hope, against decades of evidence to the contrary, that that's going to uplift the middle class. Bidenomics, this bottom-up, middle-out growth, is built on uh, three pillars. One is reversing decades of disinvestment in American public goods. Two is empowering and educating our workforce. And three is promoting competition, both to lower costs and to provide a better chance for small businesses to get a fair shake. So the three elements, trade touches on kind of all of those to some extent. And I'd be interested to know how you think about trade in the context of this kind of bottom-up, middle-out approach? Because, you know, I would say there's been, I don't know if you'd agree, but over the past 10, 15 years, you know, a huge shift in the kind of consensus opinion in American politics on whether trade, I mean, just to put it really boldly, is kind of good or bad for American workers. And I'm sorry to tack on a sort of supplementary question, but particularly interested in how you think about trade with China at the moment, what the kind of ideal state of America's economic relationship with China is. Okay, well, um, I hope you have two hours to answer that question. (laughs) I think probably the easiest way to describe a difference that your question gets at is to say that much of the political psychology around trade policy has been looking at Americans as 100% consumers and 0% workers. But of course, people are consumers, and as consumers, they benefit from the increased supply of goods from abroad. So trade flows are important, have been for a long time, and remain so, robust trade flows. But people are also workers. And we know for a fact that communities were hollowed out through irresponsible trade policy that shipped jobs overseas, all on the benefits of, look, you're going to have cheaper goods, you're going to have greater buying power, so don't worry about the fact that that factory is leaving and your town is being hollowed out. That is antithetical to the values of uh, Joe Biden and to Bidenomics. It's a critical difference. It doesn't mean, to be very clear, both of the, you got to hold two things in your head at the same time. Yes, people are consumers, and as consumers, we benefit from expanded trade. But people are also workers. And so our trade in this regard, our trade policy must be balanced. And how about the China part of that? Because there's an element of that, which is economic policy. There's also a national security element, right? And everything seems to be pushing towards, if not, you know, total separation, then a less close trading relationship than has been the case over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. I know it's hard to talk about this in terms of kind of end state, but what's your thinking on what America's kind of proper economic relationship with China ought to be? as you've suggested, national security has become a more salient issue uh, when it comes to China. And you've seen some of our restrictions when it comes to exporting high-end advanced chips that could lead to not only a competitive disadvantage, but a security disadvantage that we are mindful of. 
But getting back to my lane, to you know, Council of Economic Advisors' lane, we were taught a, a harsh and important lesson during the pandemic about the importance of resilient supply chains. Now, we saw massive spikes in car prices, both for new and used autos, because of a chip shortage. And you know, I recall one period there in 2021 where one chip factory in rural Malaysia closed and six auto production plants closed you know, for two weeks. <laughs> that is a non-resilient supply chain that uh, I think is, uh, it would be irresponsible for us to ignore. It doesn't mean that we're moving towards any sort of autarky or trying to bring trade flows down to, you know, much significantly lower levels. It's more about, again, balancing the needs of security, of resiliency, recognizing that uh, workers must be well served by trade policy, not just as consumers, but as workers. And that flows through to our China relationship as well. So we know that a tight labor market is an important part of Bidenomics. And it feels to me like this is an area where the consensus view among economists has moved your way over the past 10 years or so. There's just been so much evidence of how much good a tight labor market does in America in terms of lifting Americans out of poverty in particular. But how tight does the labor market have to be for you to start getting a bit worried um, and to worry that it's too tight? This is a question that macroeconomists are wrestling with, and nobody has the answer yet. Let me give you a simple, I hope it's a simple economic concept that you're getting at, which is uh, what we call the sacrifice ratio. And the sacrifice ratio is how many points of unemployment do you have to concede to get inflation down a point? So if it takes two points higher unemployment to get one point less inflation, that's a sacrifice ratio of two. Okay, so it's how much unemployment do you have to give up to lower inflation? This is implicit in your question. Now, we have, as I said earlier, year over year, inflation has come down by five percentage points, five percentage points from nine to four, a hugely important gain for American households. Our work is not done. That's essential. We have more work to do in that space, and we're doing it. It remains a top priority. And it links to the competition agenda in Bidenomics. At the same time, unemployment has been below 4% for a year and a half. And maybe it's ticked up recently from uh, you know, around 35 to 3.7. That is an extremely low sacrifice ratio. That's a lot less inflation without a lot more unemployment. Now, what I cannot tell you, and I don't think anyone can reliably tell you, is what happens next. Last question, Jared. When will we be able to judge whether Bidenomics has been a success or a failure? Over what kind of time frame? And what are the sort of key numbers that you will be tracking? You know, is it sort of median incomes in America adjusted for inflation? Is it, is it something else? Do you have a you know, particular number in mind that you think, okay, we really will, we will have smashed it if, you know, X is the case by the end of the decade? You know, one thing about Bidenomics that I find very appealing is that, yes, it's a theory, and it's built on the three pillars I've mentioned to you, investment, empowerment, education of our workforce, and uh, promoting competition. It's also a practice in place as we speak with many examples of how well it's been working in real time. So in a way, we don't necessarily have to wait for evidence. You mentioned uh, private sector crowd-in of investment. One of the things the president will tout in his speech today is uh, if you look at manufacturing construction, 
on U.S. soil under uh, the Trump administration, that trend was absolutely flatlining. I think it went up 2% real terms over his term. It's doubled. It's up 100%. And if you draw a line where the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act went into place, you see this hockey stick movement of this trend. I mean, so it would be a good graph for The Economist, because I know you like your graphics over there. So that's in play. Empowering workers through tight labor markets, that's in play. Promoting competition through lowering shipping costs, through getting rid of junk fees, through pushing back on overdraft fees, through getting our Federal Trade Commission to be an active cop on the beat against anti-competitive behavior. All of those are measures that we are taking now. So Bidenomics is in action and its results can be seen. I like your question about one indicator and being an economist who looks at, you know, hundreds of indicators a week, I'll probably never come up with one. You know, I do think tight labor markets are critical for empowering the workforce. So that's something we're always going to pay a lot of attention to. Look, we've got to get inflation back down. And so uh, that's something we've been making progress on, but we need to make more. I think certainly investment in public goods and the extent to which that's crowding in investment in those very sectors that the uh, legislation targets. That's another measure. So I may have given you three instead of one, but that's still pretty good for an economist. Charlotte, you wrote a cover story for us earlier in the year about the subsidies that the Biden administration was directing towards green manufacturing in particular in America and really about this whole attempt to try and reshape America's economy um, in the way that the president thinks it ought to function. What did you make of Jared Bernstein's definition of Bidenomics? You know, is it a thing? Is it a word that journalists use because it sounds good? What, what do you think it means? I think that people try to make up words to describe any new trend, but I actually think that Bidenomics is an apt description of what's underway now because it is a departure from prior policies that were pursued by Republican or Democratic administrations. And really it's about using public policy and government cash to boost American capacity. So whether it's in manufacturing, in innovation, ideally boosting America's workforce, though those policies have not been as fulsome as the Biden administration would have wanted. And they want to support growth, not just growth in GDP, but a type of growth that includes different places around America that might not naturally attract investment on their own, and growth that includes all Americans, not just growth that benefits those at the top. And so it's a much more interventionist approach than we've seen in the past. And I think there are two other important pieces that Bernstein highlighted that we can uh, emphasize as well as being new. And one is really economic policy as being intertwined with foreign policy. You heard him talk about that in the context of America's relationship with China. You can also see it in the fact that one of the most vocal advocates and architects of Bidenomics is Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor. That's not usually a role that a national security advisor plays. And so I think that that is worth noting. And then the second is this emphasis that you heard him place, Bernstein place, on workers, not just consumers. So the idea that in the past, economic policy might have benefited consumers through low prices or uh, competition policy was designed to look at the effect on consumer prices, that that's not the only lens through which we should view economic policy and gauge whether it's been a success. So Bidenomics 
sees that as the wrong lens, particularly in relation to China, that they think there should be more of a focus, not just on consumer prices, but on American workers. You also see it in the design of their antitrust policies, where you're not just looking at competition and whether a given deal might support lower consumer prices, but you're applying a broader lens. So it is something novel. Therese, I was struck, we were in DC together last week, and we were talking to some um, conservative sort of wonks at think tanks. And some of them had good things to say about an approach to managing the economy that sounds a lot like Bidenomics. It almost seems like this has gone from being a slightly fringe take on the federal government's role in economic management to something that's almost mainstream. So I think you see among Republicans like Orrin Cass, who is at an outfit called American Compass, which uh, I think is is making a lot of inroads among Republicans, but they are fulsomely in favor of industrial policy. I think where they differ with the Biden administration is their emphasis on climate spending, uh, kind of above all, and also their emphasis on unions as being the kind of beneficiaries of, of that government spending. And you saw that emphasized in Biden's speech as well. I mean, one thing is very interesting that neither Biden nor Bernstein mentioned were real wages, and that's because real wages are down since uh, January 2021. Why is that? That's because inflation's been high, and and that's a problem for them. When voters go to decide who's going to be the next president, I mean, they're going to consider a lot of things, but one of the things is going to be their real disposable income, and for a lot of Americans, that will have gone down. And the other problem is that although the nominal inflation rate has gone down, the core inflation rate, which is what the Fed actually makes its policy based on, is still really high. It's at 5.3% year over year. That means the Fed is expected to increase rates more. And when that happens, the chance of a recession happening is going to go up. And that would also be a problem for Biden. So the embrace of you know the economy as it is, I think, could prove to be a problem. And then I guess my question is, although Biden has done a lot of reorientation of the attitude of government towards spending, um, and there's a lot of industrial policy that's going on, I wonder how much is actually happening. We saw this with the stimulus that Obama did. Um, there weren't that many shovel-ready projects for him to do. So when you know you go around and you campaign and you say, we're doing all these things, we're building these highways and all the rest, what can you actually point to? I mean, I wonder how many lead pipes are actually being removed, how many broadband connections are actually being put into place. You know, A lot of the chip factories still have some time to go, how much are getting snagged on permitting. All of these things, I think, are tricky questions to try to answer. And there are ones that he's going to have to answer in the, in the year ahead. Yeah, I think that that's right. There clearly have been a lot of investments announced in manufacturing capacity, for example. And you heard Biden try to highlight that in his speech you know, $470 billion of of announcements of private sector investment in manufacturing, for example. So it's not that that's not happening. It is. The issue is that even that level of investment can be quite diffuse. It does have a benefit. All of these projects, and particularly some of the investments in clean energy, which are centered in red states, all these transmission lines and wind farms that are going to be built in this very windy corridor through the center of the country. These are investments that over the long term are going to have real benefits in different contentious congressional districts in states that Biden wants to win. But Adrisa's point is the right one in that these are investments that take a while to be felt. They're long term, right? And the problem that we have in the short term is inflation. And so the question is how you try to get credit for long term investments when you're up for reelection 
in a little over a year. And how do you take credit for stimulating the economy without taking credit for inflation? Uh, you know, that's that's a tough one to to do as well. Yeah, that's right, Idris. And that's why Jared Bernstein is keen to emphasize that inflation is coming down, things are moving in the right direction. But, you know, clearly, Joe Biden's economic record is very um, sensitive to what happens to inflation over the next few months. Charlotte talked about coining of Bidenomics earlier. We'll go back to the origin of that namenomics trend in a moment. But first, another reminder about our summer book club. Charlotte Idris and John Fasman have all chosen their pick for the great American novel. And we're going to chat about them in an episode later this summer. In case you want to read along, here's the list. Charlotte has chosen The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, as befits the New York bureau chief. Idris has chosen The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, as befits a southerner, and John Fasman has chosen Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, as befits a man who's not here. We've started our reading, and we'd love it if you'd join us. And do email us at podcast@economist.com to let us know what you think of our picks. My fellow Americans, I'd like to talk to you about a word. Ronald Reagan had a bone to pick. It's a word we've all been hearing a lot lately. The word is Reaganomics. Somewhere along the line, our economic program got tagged with that label. To tell you the truth, it isn't a name I would have chosen. It sounds like a fad diet or an aerobic exercise, but we seem to be stuck with it. With every anchor man in the evening news, a goodly share of political pundits and more than a few politicos using it, it has a good chance of becoming standard Americana. When he gave this radio address in February 1983, Reagan may not have liked the word Reaganomics, but it stuck. It wasn't, however, the first example of name-anomics. The time has come for a new economic policy for the United States. Its targets are unemployment, inflation, and international speculation. Nixonomics started to appear, often derisively, in newspaper articles and speeches in early 1970. The Economist first used it in September 1971. It was less a coherent policy than a series of responses to an economy mired in stagflation, and many of these actions were seen as unhelpful. Some names seem to lend themselves uh, to combine with nomics, as in Reaganomics or Clintonomics or Bidenomics. Lane Green is The Economist's language columnist and linguistic guru. What these names all have in common, pretty obviously, is not only do they have two syllables, and the first one of those syllables is stressed, but in the case of names like Reagan, Nixon, Biden, Clinton, they also all end in N, which happens to be the point at which we're cutting off the word economics. But the same is true for Nixon's predecessor. So why didn't Johnsonomics predate Nixonomics? The Economist has only used that term to refer to Boris, the British Prime Minister, rather than Lyndon Baines, the American President. It may just be an accident of time. Portmanteaus have grown in use. I certainly think there is a fad for coining lots of them more recently. Words like hangry and sexting are more recent examples of it. And when people want to make up a new word, one of the first devices they reach for is taking two words and kind of cramming them together. And these tend to work best when both elements are still quite clear so that when you see a brand new portmanteau, you can figure it out quite quickly, as in the case with Reaganomics, because not a lot of words end in nomics, so it must mean economics, and all of Reagan's name is in there. 
It took a while for the nameonomics craze to take hold. Nixonomics has only popped up in seven Economist articles. We never mentioned Fordonomics or Cartonomics. Clintonomics appears 19 times. Obamanomics, 7. Trumpnomics, 12. George H.W. only got one mention of Bushnomics. And with his son, we couldn't quite make up our mind. Bushnomics and Bushonomics both feature twice. But Reaganomics is still the champion of nameonomics. It features in our archive 155 times and is the most searched for on Google. I said I didn't name it Bidenomics. I didn't realize the economist in the Wall Street Journal did. But I think it's a plan that I'll, I'm happy to call Bidenomics. Joe Biden and his administration have chosen to embrace the term Bidenomics. Reaganomics has endured both because it has a ring to it and because it was a coherent, consequential doctrine whose merits are still being debated. President Biden would be delighted if his economic legacy lasted that long and is betting that voters will want to give him eight years to implement it. Incidentally, that journalist who Joe Biden was referring to at the Wall Street Journal was Greg Ipp, who used to be The Economist's US economics editor and is an all-round excellent guy. Idris, Reaganomics stuck partly, as we explained there, because it's just catchy, but also because it was a very long-lasting, coherent, influential doctrine about how the economy should be run, uh, and it's now definitively over. Yeah, I think that the appeal of Reaganomics is that there were a lot of Republicans who adhered to it for a long time, and a lot of Democrats who hated it and also mentioned it over time. It was a break from the high rates of taxes that existed before. It was this belief in supply-side economics, in the Laffer curve, the idea that by reducing tax rates you could increase revenues, a belief that government was the problem, that deregulation was generally to be the answer. So I think that that dogma really held for a long time, and I think people have argued that Democrats who got thumped in both elections against Reagan embraced some parts of it, and that's what led to the New Democrats in the 1990s, the trade liberalization, and what we see now is a really stark departure from that. So, you know, is Bidenomics so different that I think it'll last for a while? And, um, you know, it'll depend on whether or not he's reelected, but I do think it is a stark departure from say, Obamanomics, right? It is a much more fervent embrace of governmental action, of industrial policy. It is certainly much more protectionist and much more trade skeptical than Obama was. And in general, it's a greater expansion of the welfare state. I mean, in the speech that he gave in Chicago, Biden compared himself to Roosevelt and his rural electrification program, and also to Dwight Eisenhower and his interstate highway system. Both of those are pretty ambitious comparisons to make, but he's trying to recapture that old sense of an America that builds things and builds things with union labor. It's this kind of nostalgia-inflected economic policy that is is very different, but also is one that Republicans see a lot to agree with. There isn't really many market fundamentalists left. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting on the right is how Republicans really struggled to come up with an encore to Reaganism and were somewhat floundering in terms of their economic doctrine, really until Donald Trump came along and gave them an entirely new economic approach, which they've which they've run with, Charlotte. Yeah. Reaganomics, to put it really simply, was about pulling government back. It was about reducing regulation, reducing taxes, reducing 
government spending so that you unleash private sector growth. And the other word for Reaganomics is supply-side economics. And Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, tried to rebrand this with modern supply-side economics, which was basically the opposite of Reaganomics, i.e. emphasizing government investment in infrastructure, in R&D, in green investments, and arguing that the prior form of supply-side economics, tax cuts, deregulation, had real shortcomings, societal shortcomings in leaving places and people behind, and environmental shortcomings in not being able to deal with climate change. And as you say, what's interesting is that the Biden administration has built up an explicit economic philosophy that is accompanied by really big policies. CHIPS and the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, these are not small bills, nor is the Infrastructure Act. And I think you can have a pretty healthy debate about the ambition of these programs compared with prior really big programs that came before. The Biden administration's ambition for the IRA is to try to decarbonize the American economy and create lots of American jobs and put as many supply chains as possible within America's borders. I'd argue that that's not the most efficient way to decarbonize America's economy, and it may not play out as planned because of permitting roadblocks and political fights in Congress. But in terms of the scale of the ambition, I think it is reasonable to put it in the same category as the interstate highway system, as an example. To your question, John, to finally get to it, the question of what Republican policies are in this regard and how they differ from the Biden administration is a really interesting one because it's not like the Republicans are getting behind the old supply-side economics, the old Reaganomics, unleashing only private sector growth without public intervention. They don't support lots of new trade deals. And so I think what will be fascinating in the months to come is how Trump does or doesn't put forward his own slate of economic policies to advance the populist vision that he was so good at selling in prior elections, whether he puts any more meat on those bones. And that will make for, I think, a pretty interesting campaign. That's really interesting because Bidenomics and Trumponomics before it are predicated on the idea, really, that the US economy isn't doing well, hasn't been doing well for most American workers for quite a long time. And it's not clear, looking at the data, that that's actually the case. In fact, there's quite a lot of data to suggest that the US economy has been doing pretty well since at least 2015. So we'll be back in a moment to look at how the US economy has really been doing and how that compares to some of the rhetoric that you hear from politicians about it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Simon Rabinovich is our US economics editor. I asked him whether he thinks Bidenomics has been successful so far. Well, I think a lot of the debate electorally will center around Biden's short-term performance. I do think there is an argument that taking a longer-term perspective, 
we might really come to the view that there was a Bidenomics in the sense that there is a definite program focused on trying to remake the American economy, trying to boost manufacturing industry, trying to shift the energy base towards more renewables. These are all potentially transformative for the economy. So I think you can argue that there is a Bidenomic program. I think the challenge, though, is that you know, if you think about the electoral cycle, we really have no idea what the results of that program are going to be. So the focus will be on all of the short-term elements, which are really much more cyclical. The question for the longer term is, structurally, will President Biden succeed in changing the nature of the U.S. economy? And I think that is still very much open to question. Jared Bernstein would say that one element of Bidenomics is running the labor market hot, as hot as you can without inflation taking off too much. Is that Bidenomics or is that pretty much consensus economics? Well, it's something like consensus in the last few years predating Biden that a hot, tight labor market is obviously good for workers and that the economy can actually endure a tighter labor market than previously supposed. That's really a a shift in views that that predates Biden, that predates the COVID pandemic. And I, I would actually say that the Federal Reserve has been a more important figure in this debate than the White House itself, because the Fed, with its interest rate policies, has much more direct control over the cyclical shape of the labor market. And it's really the Fed before the pandemic that came to that view that actually, with a lower unemployment rate, inflation wouldn't necessarily be higher. Therefore, you could have a tighter labor market for longer. And that's a good thing. Now, that view has been challenged quite dramatically in the last two years, uh, given how high inflation has been. So the Fed nowadays is grappling with, well, actually, maybe the labor market is too tight. Or if you want to have a tighter labor market for longer, then you need to do more right now to cool the economy. So I think it's convenient for Jared Bernstein and for the administration to argue that this is a key part of Bidenomics. I I don't think it is, though. I I think it's really a, a much more widespread debate within economics, within the Federal Reserve. It's, it's not just the prerogative of the White House. Simon, I wanted to ask you about a recent piece you wrote on the US economy, a cover story, in fact, pointing out that over quite a long period now, the US economy has just done a lot better than the economies of other rich world countries. So that really gets to the whole premise of Bidenomics and Trumponomics before that, which I think was built on the idea that the American economy is not working well for most Americans. Is that premise fundamentally misconceived, do you think? I think it is misconceived in one important sense, which is that if you look at America's performance relative to other wealthy developed countries around the world, America has consistently been an outperformer for the last three decades. You know, there's a lot of different things that go into it. America obviously has the natural advantage of being an absolutely mammoth single market. It does have a very skilled population. Traditionally, it's been much more open to uh, international migrants than many other developed economies. That obviously has changed a little bit in recent years, but it's had that large skilled labor pool. It's had an incredibly dynamic domestic market. You know, the rate of bankruptcies for companies 
tends to be higher in the States, but as a result, there's just a lot of churn, a lot of creative destruction, a lot of innovation. There's a reason that America is home to Silicon Valley and Europe is not. So America has done a lot of things well, you know, consistently for decades. I think that there's some cognitive dissonance in that people kind of look around and they see data about mortality rates in America being higher than in other rich countries. They see the fentanyl problem. So there's, there's a lot of things to dislike about the shape of the American economy. But the argument of, of my piece was that the real tragedy is that America has done well, that it most certainly has the wealth and the ability to address a lot of these problems if it chooses to. The existence of those problems is not proof that the economy has failed, uh, but really that the political system uh, has failed. So I think you then have to ask whether or not all of this focus on trying to transform the American economy you know, is actually the, the right thing to do. So to go back to your earlier question about whether or not Bidenomics is a success, in a decade from now, not only is the question, will Biden have brought about a manufacturing renaissance, but additionally, will that manufacturing and industrial renaissance be consistent with America still having growth and productivity rates that are higher uh, than its rich world peers? Uh, or will Biden have succeeded in building up all the factories, but kind of at the cost of America's secret sauce? So Charlotte, as Simon pointed out there, the American economy has actually done pretty well over the past, not quite 10 years, let's say since about 2015, there's been faster growth than in other rich world countries. The labor market's been tight. Inflation, though it's been high since COVID-19 came along and the supply chain disruptions and all the rest, it's actually come down a fair bit. Why then this perception that was certainly around in 2016 and perhaps possibly helped Donald Trump get elected and that Joe Biden and his administration seem to share? Why this perception that there's something kind of fundamentally wrong with America's economy that needs fixing? Why are people unhappy if the numbers suggest they shouldn't be? I think part of it is the difference between top-line national economic figures and the economic figures in particular parts of the country and among particular demographics. But it's also worth noting that those big economic figures are really divorced from political realities, particularly in key swing states. And so it also is politically advantageous to play up discontent when you're a change candidate, which Donald Trump was in 2016. So I think that helps explain some of it. What do you think, Idris? I actually last week moderated an event uh, where two conservative economists disagreed on, on this. So one was Scott Winship at the American Enterprise Institute, who argued that if you look at inflation indices and adjust properly, you know, you see that, like Simon was saying, living standards have gone up quite a lot. And then on debating him was Oren Cass, who had come out with a cost of thriving index, which basically looked at, I believe it's a man's wage and his ability to afford health care, housing, maybe a car, and I think higher education as well. There's one other I'm, I'm forgetting. And basically, when he computes it that way, he sees basically a huge cost to achieving a middle class life. And, and basically, the two of them were disagreeing pretty strenuously. I think the data is fairly clear that living standards have gone up. But I think the idea that something has gone wrong is fairly unanimously shared, right? There's a reason that Joe Biden called it Build Back Better. Um, resolving that paradox is kind of the million-dollar question for American politics. 
part of it is that living standards are just higher and the cost of things that people want to buy is gone up. There's that explanation. Then I think there's also this um, kind of psychological one where people not only perceive their own prospects as stagnating, but also their kids as stagnating. So you see uh, America has really low relative social mobility rates, um, declining absolute mobility rates for children. And I think that that has a feedback effect on on parents who feel like their kids are not going to be in a better situation than, than they are. And so I think that those things uh, psychologically are, are, are clearly very powerful. And that's why both Democrats and Republicans agree that Americans have gotten a raw deal over the last 30 or 40 years, as Simon has shown, I think, really powerfully. The data are a lot rosier than that. But yet this uh, this pessimism is really hard to shake. I'll be really interested to see if the Biden administration can be effective in trying to convey to the American public that all of its economic policies will have an impact, not just in the long term, but in the short term in a way that helps them. So how tangible they can make these investments feel in the speech that Biden gave yesterday and in some of the press materials that the administration put out to accompany that that speech, they clearly are going to be sending administration officials out into the wild to try to sell this plan. There are some people in the administration who are indeed much more effective communicators than Biden himself. But regardless of who the messenger is, it's not an entirely straightforward message. So I'm interested to see how effective they are in doing that. And then one last little point from the prior segment, the prior discussion that I want to note, and I think is worth raising that in between, of course, Reaganomics and Bidenomics, there were some other nomics, but they included Clintonomics, which was really the height of Democrats' embrace of open market deregulation. You know, Clinton signed NAFTA. He encouraged China's accession to the WTO. It was a very, very different period, and it wasn't that long ago. It was about 20 years ago. And so looking not just within the Republican Party or Democratic Party, but really looking at that arc from the late 90s to today, I think it's helpful to see just how dramatic that arc has been in what's not really that long a period of time. I wonder if it goes even closer to the present day, whether you see Obama is really that different from Clinton in in economic policy regards. I think Obama represented the last gasp of Clintonomics. I mean, nobody really says Obamanomics. They talk about Obamacare. That was his big policy. But it's not Obamanomics is not something that I think will live on in history, largely because it wasn't that different. A lot of this, I think, reflects circumstance. There was no Obamanomics, I think, because the Obama administration had its hands full with the recovery from the financial crisis. So in times of crisis, the president's task and the task of Congress is to try and really get back to normal. It's only in the good times, like now, that the president gets some sort of shot at remaking the American economy. So it's a kind of bull market approach to economic management. We talked a fair bit about Bidenomics on this pod. Do you guys have other political portmanteaus that you particularly enjoy? Um, I, I largely find portmanteaus detestable. So the ones that I like are the ones that are that you forget are portmanteaus like stagflation i think is fine i think obamacare is fine i find a lot of the rest of them to be fairly revolting okay so this <laughs> i'm so thrilled to hear that you find them revolting because i really enjoy trying to come up with them so the only serious <laughs> one that i came up with was when i was covering energy and people talk about petrostates and i came up with the term electrostate to talk about china because it is investing in mines and batteries supply chain etc and trying to build up its geopolitical strengthen the clean energy supply chain. So that's my most substantive one. But I have a lot of portmanteaus I've come up with related to reporters. So authoritis, 
is when a reporter wishes that they were an author and had written an actual book. Appendixitis is when a reporter wishes they had written something long enough to have an appendix. Should I go on? Yes, please. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> keep going. This sounds like it's alphabetical and we're only the A's. Influenza is when someone feels sick because they don't have enough influence. I'll stop now. No, that's so but good. I, really I've got, I was really slow on the button, but I'm going to use this one. <laughs> nice. Okay, it's quiz time, and I warn you in advance, I'm going to make liberal use of these. First up, many listeners will know that the R in Joseph R. Biden stands for Robinette, which is the maiden name of Biden's grandmother. I'm going to give you some middle names of other presidents, and I want you to tell me what decade they were all in power. So the first four are Burchard, Abram, Allen, and Grover. These are all middle names of different presidents? They are. And they were all in power in the same decade. So what decade had four presidents? Yeah. The 70s, maybe? Sorry, say them again. They were Burchard, Abram, Allen, and Grover. I think this happened sometime in the 19th century, but I don't know which decade. So I'm just taking a 100-year umbrella answer with no specific presidents. It's not really an answer, but I'm hoping for a sound effect. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the 1890s or something. That is so close. (laughs) (laughs) It was the the 1880s. They were Rutherford Burchard Hayes, James Abram Garfield, Chester Allen Arthur, and Stephen Grover Cleveland, who went by Grover Cleveland, even though Grover was his middle name. Okay. Question two. I think you guys are going to find this one easier. Three presidents, all in power in the same decade. These are their middle names. Milhouse, Rudolph, and Earl. Idris nodded knowingly. Go for it. Any Simpsons fan will be able to get this, I hope. Milhouse is is Nixon, so I think it's the 70s. Um, Oh. I'm getting carried away here. The 1970s is correct. You you nailed it, Idris. So that's a point for you. Or maybe three points. I'm not sure. Just give three points. Bonus question. Who was the first president to have a middle name? Hmm. I think... Um, John... Uh, yeah, one of the Adamses. John Quincy Adams? Is the right answer... Fantastic. I think you both got there, really, so you can each have a point. The answer is John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president of America. Middle names weren't as common uh, when the previous five presidents were born. They were sort of slightly later fashion. So, yeah, John Quincy Adams. Well done. That was a creditable performance, despite my attempts to distract you with the sound effects. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Next week, I'll be back in London without access to the mixing desk, which I'm a little bit sad about. Oh, God. I will not be sad about this. <laughs> uh, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. And I'd like to be clear, had nothing to do with the awful noises I've been making in this podcast. Thank you to Simon Rabinovich for his help throughout the episode. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to The Economist. Your support allows us to carry on making podcasts like Checks and Balance. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. Not only will it help us out, you'll get full access to all of our brilliant journalism at The Economist. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. 
In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.